Let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, in the book of Psalms we read, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Earlier on in this service, Lord God, we confessed our sins. And as we come to think about those Bible passages and the topic that's been set before us, we pray that you will speak to us through the Holy Spirit, convict us where we live lives that are displeasing to you, and give us the grace to apply your word into our lives that we might be not just hearers, but above all doers of your word to please and glorify you. Amen. I need to issue a warning at the beginning. This is going to be an R-rated sermon, not just because uh, it involves a renewed mind, right attitude, and that the righteousness of God will be uppermost, but as you follow the sermon, it will be R-rated. Statistical data uh, overwhelmingly demonstrates that sexual purity is a problem for society at large, for both male and female, whether single or married. Some of us attended a a wedding service yesterday, and a more modern version of the uh, marriage service was used. But in the 1662 prayer book marriage service, the second reason for marriage is worded this way. Secondly, marriage was ordained for a remedy against sin. And to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of continency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. And what that means is the prayer book acknowledges that we are sexual male and female and that uh, the enjoyment of sex is for a marriage relationship. And in fact, God gives this so that we can deal with uh, uh, the sex, our sexuality. Yesterday was a marriage service. Some of you were there, and many of you present here this morning are married, and others of you, maybe that's uh, uh, in the planning that hasn't been revealed to us yet. When married couples uh, experience problems in communication, and don't be surprised, that's going to happen from time to time, conflict inevitably arises from the miscommunication. And when conflict arises, they stop getting intimate. And this happens for a period. And if it continues for an extended period, this results in challenges and stress in remaining sexually pure. In the 1 Corinthians 7 passage, verse 5 says, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, And for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Because this is a complicated topic, I consulted uh, an expert in my preparation. That's Kamal's mother, Patricia Wirakun, who's a noted sexologist. And if you look at the Wikipedia entry on her, it says, Wirakun teaches that sex... And the wonder of human genitalia are gifts from God that should be celebrated. And Patricia Wirakorn confirmed to me that pornography here in Australian society 
is engaged in by a very high, a very high percentage of people, both singles and married. And there's a book, book by evangelical scholar Tim Chalice. It's called um, "Sexual Detox." Sexual Detox, and he speaks of pornifying the marriage bed, pornifying the marriage bed as a flow-on effect from too much pornography. You and I would be naive to think that sexual purity is not a challenge nor a struggle for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ, whether they're single or whether they're married. But if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you may not understand why believers would and should give important emphasis to living according to God's design because he's our creator and he's given a design uh, for living as men and women, in particular, uh, living as men and women uh, sexually pure in accord with God's design for sexuality. One of the reasons I retired from being uh, a Presbyterian minister is that uh, I no longer go to meetings, I don't go to general assembly, and I cannot be uh, appointed to special committees to deal with problems in the church. But many, many years ago, I was uh, tasked with interviewing men to be candidates to become ministers of the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. And the number of men in those days struggling with pornography and therefore needing counselling and help was very high. That was years and years ago. Before the advanced devices that are used by today's generation that I am told by sociologists are characterised by instant gratification. Is sexual purity a struggle for you? If not, then may this sermon help you to be prepared for the time in the future sometime when you will be bombarded by sexual temptation. But if, at the present moment, sexual purity is a challenge and a struggle for you, may this sermon uh, help you seek uh, the help that you need. In Ephesians 5, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather uh, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. One of the catch cries of today's generation is, My body, my rights. That's, that is applied to you know, abortion but it's also applied to sexuality. We only read the first, uh, I think, uh, uh, seven verse or five verses of 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians, 12, verse, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, Paul cites there the Corinthians' previous correspondence. I have the right to do anything, you say. And that was the catch cry of the Corinthians with, with respect to life in general, but with respect to life sexually, and Paul addresses that. This is the catch cry of today's generation. My body, my rights. Amnesty International says, being able to make one's own decisions about our health, body, and sexual life is a basic human right. Now, this is where Bible-believing Christians are going to differ from people who have rejected God from their lives. And when they have a different worldview and perspective on sexuality, they're going to stand out from their peers and colleagues. Because the non-believer 
only sees human existence from a material or physical perspective. They don't believe that men and women have souls. They do not believe in life after death. That's why funerals, it's celebration of life. No, no thought of what happens after death. Because they don't believe in life after death. And so for them, life revolves around getting maximum enjoyment, maximum pleasure while you can. I've just been to two funerals in the past two weeks. Who's next? Maximum enjoyment, maximum pleasure while we can. Of course, this includes maximum sexual enjoyment and pleasure. And therefore, the person who doesn't have God in their lives takes the view, we can do anything with our bodies, especially with regard to sexuality, as long as it doesn't hurt or harm others. And if we look back in history to the Greek philosophers, they took the view that humans consist of two parts, a physical body and a non-physical soul that was sort of imprisoned within the body so that on death the soul would be released. And so for them, living in the flesh, in the body, there are no holds barred, no taboos while enjoying one's sexuality because it's only a bodily function because what really counts is the soul. But what does the New Testament teach us? Very soon we'll be celebrating Christmas and the clear message of Christmas is about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus, God the Eternal Son, becomes a real human being, flesh and blood. And that affirms the goodness of the body, physical body, and the goodness of life in the body. And then the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, affirms the reality, not only of body and resurrection, but we can have bodily existence in heaven. And if you have time to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we are taught that Jesus, as a man, was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was a red-blooded, red-blooded male, normal level of libido, but he lived a sexually pure life. And as we read the gospel accounts, he was often mixing with prostitutes. Yet he continued to live a sexually pure life. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, a verse just before the second passage that Kendra read for us, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then the verses that Kendra read for us, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought it with a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. And so Paul urges us to keep on fleeing from sexual immorality. For, the, for those of you who don't know think about grammar, English grammar, this is a present continuous exhortation, present continuous command. Keep on fleeing from sexual immorality. And the context that Paul gives his exhortation is that the people are surrounded by sexual images and sexual activity all around. That sexual, because sexual immorality is so common, therefore each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So I've just read from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, verse 2, which is a more literal translation. And in the past, I used to take the view that 1 Corinthians 7... Paul was seeking to point out that very few like him had the gift of signalness. And if you didn't have the gift of signalness, 
therefore, you ought to get married. That's why in the marriage uh, uh, sermon, uh, marriage uh, order of service, it talks about uh, marriage is for those who have the gift of marriage. And it usually was assumed that most people did, and that very few had the gift of singleness. But actually, I've come to realize that Paul's actually urging everyone to get married and have a normal, healthy sexual life because we live in a sexually charged world. They lived in Corinth. They saw sex everywhere. So I'm more open to the understanding that have your own wife is a euphemism for having sexual relationships with one's wife. And that, that was in the version of the Bible uh, read for us by Kendra. And I believe that Paul prob- probably was married because uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, and you had to be a married person. So it's possible he had been married and maybe his wife died. But in 1 Corinthians 7, his point about himself was, as a widower, he chose not to remarry so he could focus on ministry and, and be single-minded, but he was still aware of sexual temptation. Now, a little uh, before we come to the four, four points of the sermon, something uh, a little bit technical about the words, and normally from the pulpit we shouldn't talk about Greek words, but I just want to introduce one Greek word for you, and it's in your outline. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, and also by uh, our Lord Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 9, uh, the Greek word porneia is used. The Matthew passage is, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, what does this Greek word porneia mean? And English Bible translations over the centuries have either used the word fornication or, in more modern translations, sexual immorality. So let me sort of give the, the, the nuance uh, differences between different terms. Adultery occurs when two have sex and one of the parties is married. That's adultery. Fornication is used when neither are married. Sort of like sex before marriage. Uh, any fans of the X-Files here? David Dushovic? A few? Oh. He started another TV series. Do you know what it was called? Californication. Have you heard of it? So I had to check, 2007 to 2014. David was, was, in a, was in a series called Californication, so you can guess what happens uh, to the characters in California. And I understand there's a, gra- a, 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 um, a band called Red Hot Chili Pepper, and they sang a song, Californication, and the key line in that song is, hardcore soft porn. Listen to the song. So adultery is when one is married. Fornication is when neither are married. But I think the best way to understand this Greek word is any sexual activity that is not sanctioned by God and not pleasing to God. And when you look at the Bible as a whole, there are a lot of passages referring to sex because it's a major aspect of our lives as men and women. Um, It's either God's gift to enjoy in the manner that God intended, or it's a snare that leads us to destruction. And uh, I spoke to Kendra before the service, and I said, I hope it's not too difficult to read these passages in public. There are other passages that are more R-rated in Ezekiel, where it describes the the size and shapes of genitalia of stallions. It's in the Bible. 
Because the Bible takes sex seriously and is aware of what men and women face daily. Um, and so, uh, just as a follow-up, if you want to read some passages on the Bible that talk about sex, Ezekiel 16, Proverbs 5, and for married couples, I uh, encourage you to read together Song of Songs, Song of Songs, and uh, as you read it carefully, see if you can identify that the Song of Songs talks about the missionary position. Now, if you don't know what that means, maybe you can consult a one of the doctors here, the missionary position. All right, our first point is know the context of our sexually charged world. In the Old Testament world, there are frequent commands for them not to do what the Canaanites did, their worship, because their worship is what we call sympathetic worship. So you see those dolls and they put pins in the dolls, that's called sympathetic magic. You do something here and affect something that happens over there. And so part of Canaanite worship was, was temple prostitution, sowing the seed into a fertile soil so that, so that the, the crops would be, crops would be uh, abundant because agricultural society. And then we come to Corinthians. The Corinthian, uh, so Paul wrote about that, sex was everywhere. And there was also temple prostitution in, in, in Corinth. And uh, if you watch some of those documentaries uh, of the excavations of the, uh, um, the, the volcano Vesuvius that covered Pompeii, uh, I think maybe, I don't know when, 70 BC, something like that. Um, the documentaries, they're, they're, they're still excavating at Pompeii, but they show all these rooms with these mosaics of these graphic pictures of sexual acts, and that was rampant in Rome. And that was the sort of background that... Um, Paul was writing in. We can look at a slide now, which the people won't see. That's long enough. You can switch it off. This is uh, from uh, Chandi Suku, which is at the Suku Temple in Indonesia. It's uh, east of uh, east of Solo, east of Surakarta, and it's towards the border. With uh, I've not actually been to this temple. I've been very close to it on several occasions on my way to. Uh, another place for a camp. Whatever society we live in, whatever age, it's going to be a sexually charged uh, society. Sex in the city, sex in the media, sex in the workplace. And if you and I are going to be bombarded by sex constantly, how are we to respond? Probably hard for, you, for this generation to, to imagine, but in the old, old days... 50s and 60s, when you know people were dating, the question was, how far should a girl go? What can they do before they get married? That was a real struggle for non-believers, but an even greater struggle for believers. And you know, can we touch the erogenous zones and all that sort of stuff? And you've probably never heard of these words. You can Google them: petting or necking. This is referring to sexual activity. Be- with clothes on and so on. Uh, Who has seen the movie When Sally Met Harry? Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal? When when Sally Met Harry, 1989 movie. This is where the line, I'll have what she's having. That's where that line comes from. You've probably seen the uh, uh, advertisement for some cereal, I'll have what she's having. Do you know the context for that line? The Meg Ryan character said, 
I can, I can feign uh, orgasm in public, and she does it, and she moans and groans in public. 1989. In the 60s, I was studying at City University, and in my final year, I was lining up in the, um, what used to be the Stephen Roberts Lecture Theatre, which, which now has been knocked down. It's part of the new law school. And uh, lining up to buy lunch in those days, we'd buy salad roll, salad roll, maybe a piece of cheese in it, and heard all these noises and moaning and groaning. You know, you sort of filter them off, and uh, the cue moves slowly, and there's a girl on a, on a guy's lap, a girl with long blonde hair on a guy's lap, and they're doing various things. And then suddenly, the guy says, and what's your name? And then she says, I'm Lorna. I look, oh, it's my classmate! Very athletic, number two squash player at Sydney University. But what, what this illustrates is sexual activity devoid from relationship. He didn't know, he didn't even know her name. They must have just met. We live in a sexually charged world. And sadly, I, I know personally those who have given in to the pressures of sexually charged world. One of my colleagues, before his wife died of cancer, was already seeing another woman, and she had not been buried very long, and he'd married this other woman. Someone I was involved in mentoring... Uh, had to give up the ministry because he got involved with another woman. A few weeks ago, we had our Vision Sunday at um, Australian Catholic University, and uh, I met some of the newer couples that go to the Lidcombe Church. And one couple said they came from Singapore. So naturally, you know, where do you live, which church do you go to? And, and uh, it was the woman who said she went to Zion Presbyterian Church, Siantang. Oh, I said, oh, you mean Kunseng Road? And the minister is... He also, and the other ministers, Chen, Chen Sufu. And he said, wow. And I said, oh, I used to be in the Presbyterian Church. And I said, are you the upstairs congregation or the downstairs congregation? Because the church had a split. And so one part of the church went upstairs and one part went downstairs. She was upstairs. So it's the same congregation as the mother of uh, one of my church members. So I was intrigued. I said, I wonder what happened to this church. Because I've never actually been there. It doesn't have an English service. It's a Hokkien-speaking church or a... Mandarin speaking church, and I, I, I was never tasked to go to their church to do something. But I went online, and lo and behold, they've got a huge church building uh, in Upper East Coast, part of Singapore, growing congregation. They must be very, very effective in uh, uh, ministering to the Hokkien speaking, Mandarin speaking in Singapore. And I looked at some of the sermons, you know, and I looked at one by the, the pastor, I know, Chen, Chen Sufu. Then, oh, then I saw there's a, there's a sermon by by this preacher, he's Indonesian, Andreas Abianto, but Chinese name is Chen Tianan. So I listened to his sermon, a very powerful sermon. Why am I telling you this story? This pastor was a famous pastor, everyone knows this in Indonesia, in Magalang, which is about one and a half hours from where we were. And my American missionary friend was part of this church. And he was such a good pastor, such a good preacher, such, you know, he could sing and do all these sort of things that some pastors can do. Because he was so good, he had enemies. And the enemies wanted to get at him, but they couldn't find any dirt. Until one day, he was caught going to a famous prostitute. I thought it was in the same town. But I only found out last week from one of the uh, uh, widows of a famous Indonesian pastor, he went all the way to Dogja. And he got caught going there. And my, I was told by the son of one of the elders. Uh, but certainly another church member. And, the, and the, his wife forgave him 
uh, the church was split, and he had to leave Indonesia. And he came to Singapore, and he was in a Chinese-speaking church in the Queenstown part of Singapore. I met him twice in Singapore, maybe three times. The first time, he was the interpreter for, uh, um, it's like a Billy Graham crusade. It was a Reinhard Bonke crusade. He interpreted in Indonesian. You know, he was very embarrassed when he saw me because he knew I knew his background. And the second time, I had to go to the Blanco Court area, which doesn't exist anymore in Singapore, uh, to do something with the church's lawyers and having lunch there with church. And he was there, and we, we chatted. But when I saw the sermon about two weeks ago, he had been restored. He had gone into moral failure, but he sought help. He confessed, and through God's grace, God restored him. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because I was once at a seminar in Indonesia, and obviously I was younger then, at half this size, because I still played a lot of sport in those days. And I heard the older minister speak, and then it suddenly dawned on me. So when you see a doctor, and the doctor says, does it hurt on a scale of 10? Is it a 7? Is it a 3? So we're talking about sexual desire, libido. It seems that his scale out of 10 was close to 10, and his wife was very low, maybe 1 or 2. And they couldn't sort it out. So our first point is know the context of our sexually charged world. And if you know yourself, you have to be very careful in the world that we're in. And if, even if we do fall, um, there is forgiveness and there is restoration if we're willing to go through the process. So the challenge for all of us is to know how to respond appropriately as we live and work and minister in a sexually charged world. Our second point is knowing God's charge, because the Bible teaches us that sex is to be enjoyed in a marriage relationship between a husband and wife. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, it says, marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The last Bible reading that Kendra read for us was from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But let me read the New American Standard Bible's uh, version. This is maybe a version you haven't heard of, uh, but it's a Bible version uh, that's very good. It's more literal in translation, and words that are not there in the Greek but have to be added to make English sense are put in italics. And it reads, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that's the word porneia, that each of you know how to uh, so I can't read my own writing now. How to sorry, how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And it's talking about the the attitude and action of a husband to his wife. Do we know God's charge uh, for marriage? God's standards are much higher than those of the world. Let me read again Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better 
for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, for the Christian, for the believer, for the disciple of Jesus who seriously, genuinely wants to please God, in the exercise of our sexuality, it involves the mind and the heart. And the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And when we read that, for all of us, it's impossible. God's standards are too high. And that's why we need God's uh, help through the Holy Spirit. And uh, a big thank you to the music team willing to sing the song that I chose. I think it's from the 80s, Purify My Heart. Purify my heart, let it be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold, pure gold, refine as fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy. Set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. You see, with pure minds and pure hearts, our actions will be pure. Now, one of the dangers um, we face is the danger of compromise or willful redefinition. You know, it's a child that's caught doing something and the child redefines it. So we're going back into American politics now. So Bill Clinton, you've heard of Bill Clinton? Uh, you, have you heard of Monica Lewinsky? You, you, you may need to Google this, Monica Lewinsky. Uh, the years are 1995 to 1997. Bill Clinton, he's a lawyer from Arkansas, from Little Rock, Arkansas. I did not have sex with that woman. It's a literal tra translation, a literal quote of what he said. I did not have sex with that woman. Now, unlike uh, Brittany Higgins, if you've been following the news, and her so-called dress, Monica Lewinsky kept her dress with... Uh, uh, Clinton's semen on the dress. But he said, I did not have sex with that woman. There's some legal, legal experts here. So I checked uh, Crimes Act, New South Wales, Section 61HA, the meaning of sexual intercourse from a legal perspective. For the purposes of this division, sexual intercourse means, A, the penetration to any extent of the genitalia or anus by a person by, one, any part of the body of an alpha person, or two, any object manipulated by another person, or three, the introduction of any part of the genitalia of a person into the mouth of another person, and it goes on and on and on. I'm not going to read the whole lot. You could Google that yourself. And you can guess what Clinton did. But he was trying to get away by saying, I did not go beyond the bounds of the legal definition of sexual intercourse. I did not have sex with that woman. So whatever sin you and I commit, we might try to tell God a redefinition of what we did. Uh, I, I, I mentioned that one of the um, reasons I, 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 I retired from ministry, it means I still could do ministry, but I, I can't be put on committees, is when ministers get into moral failure, 
they go through what is called the code of discipline. And I, I have to perhaps shock you a bit. They, they, they get, they're prosecuted in the court of the church, and I've done this several times with several ministers who will remain, remain nameless, one who was a famous minister in New South Wales. And you have, you have, a, you have a, um, uh, a, a prosecutor and you have a defence lawyer in the, in the church court because it's fair. He, the ministers alleged to have done something. Well, what's the evidence? And, you know, and sadly, some ministers have done things they should not have done. Or, or sometimes they've done things that haven't gone too far, but far enough. And the question is, can the minister be restored? Or must the minister be removed from being a minister of the of New South Wales? And sadly, I've been involved in the removal of at least three ministers. Because they just couldn't respond appropriately to living in a sexually charged world. And they couldn't appropriately uh, follow out God's charge uh, for sexuality. Now, I don't know too much about America, um, and I don't know about this group theologically, but at least there's a group in America, I think they call themselves promise keepers. And I don't know if it's largely uh, males or uh, as opposed to females, but apparently they have annual conventions, and they all vow uh, to be virgins, to be sexually celibate before marriage, which is unheard of in Western countries. Now, I... I tried to prepare this sermon and try to get, uh, try to get uh, um, real data, not, you know, guessing data. And I thank you to several who spoke to me and were willing to share your opinion or, or what knowledge. I understand there's a sort of code of silence at, G, at Grace Point. We don't talk about it. We might talk about it, um, you know, one-to-one. And I was told there is a fairly good level of accountability. And that sort of mirrors what... I think this, this group, Promise Keepers in America, America is, they know God's charge for marriage, they know God's charge for sexuality, and they want to keep it despite what the world says. And so my challenge is, if we're reading through the Bible, the whole Bible, I'm not talking about a time frame, I'm not saying the whole Bible in one year, but the whole Bible regularly, as I said, it talks a lot about sex throughout the whole, whole Bible, and we'll, we will be constantly reminded as we do this of God's charge for our sexuality. Our third point is to know the consequences of porneia, sexual activity or thought that is displeasing to God. Uh, so let me read again. Oh, let me read uh, verses 9 to 10 of 1 Corinthians 6. It's quite uh, unequivocal. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and it's a noun uh, that's related to the word porneia, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the second last book of the New Testament, Jude, verse 7, uses the verb that's only used once in in the Bible, and it, it's a verb that's formed from the word porneia, and it's, it has a, a prefix that means uh, it, it's, it's an emphatic thing. It refers to overindulgence to sexual sin. And the verse reads, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns 
gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. All sin is sin. But for some reason, the Bible seems to place special focus on the seriousness of sexual sin. That's very clear from 1 Corinthians 6. And that's why there are many warnings throughout the Bible uh, of the consequences of porneo sexual sin. And the book of Revelation, interestingly, uh, several times refers to, the, to punishment is, that's going to come upon those who persist in sexual sin. When was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? Because in our modern society, uh, we tend to downplay the con- consequences of persistent and willful sin that leads to hell. Uh, I, I, I get all my years mixed up. Um, I, I think the Rugby World Cup is on now, and maybe it's going to be the All Blacks against the Lions, that is New Zealand against um, England, is that correct? Some of you know anything about rugby. I, we, I know there's at least one famous rugby player in our midst. Uh, we'll remember that Isaac Falau got into trouble because he quoted the verse I just read, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. And he meant well, but that's not the way to do it. If people don't know the Bible, you shouldn't just quote it at them because what does the Bible mean to them? And he was trying to warn them, warn them about hell. But what I'm trying to point out is that because we don't hear about hell, we don't talk about hell, the danger is we overemphasize that God is a God of love, and at the same time we downplay that God is a just and righteous God who's going to deal with sin. And remember what Terence said at the beginning, why it's important for us to confess sin, all sin. But you might be here uh, this morning, you're not a believer. And let me hasten to add that the gospel means that through faith in Jesus, all our sins can be forgiven. Uh, Terence has mentioned this in several things that he said. Our, our first song was Amazing Grace, that Jesus died on the cross uh, for our sins, for all sins, including sexual sins. And our last point is making the right choices. So let's fill our minds with what's pure and holy. We need to pursue holiness. 1 Timothy 6, 11, we had a sermon a few weeks ago, pursuing God, godliness with contentment. We need to pursue holiness. That's Hebrews 12, verse 14. And Galatians 5, verse 23, expresses, tells us that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. And we need to deal with accessibility. In other words, don't put ourselves in the positional situation where we're going to be exposed unnecessarily to temptation. Have you seen Oppenheimer? Don't put up your hand, it's a trick question. It's like Simon says, you know. I'm told there's a sex scene in Oppenheimer. Um, And I'm not going to see Oppenheimer. I don't go to the movies, it's too expensive, I'm not interested. Uh, But I'm just using this as a more current illustration. I'm told it's a very, very good movie. Now, why is it that in very, very good movies, there's the obligatory sex scene? And it's not, you know, you know on a scale of 1 to 10, it's not a, a, a scale 3. It might be a scale 8 or 9 sex scene. So what do you do? You know, you sort of, you know, well, what do you do when you're watching the movie? You, you, that's for you to decide because I won't be there to watch the movie. But the point is, don't put yourself in a situation where you exist unnecessarily to temptation, and for your devices, 
quite a few IT people who know these things. Put filters on your devices and get someone to keep you accountable. I've already mentioned the true humanity of Jesus. He was a red-blooded male with normal levels of testosterone. He would have been tempted as we are, but at each time he made the right choice. And this is our, four, our fourth point, making the right choice. We're always faced with choices. An easy, an, an easy way is to go with the flow. Jesus could appreciate beauty without having any lust. Hebrews 4, 15, 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I think some of you here have studied psychology, or you're professional work in professional psychology. Psychologists talk about the term sublimation. It's nothing to do with chemistry uh, when, when solid iodine becomes gaseous iodine. That's sublimation. In chem- but we're talking about redirecting sexual energy. So that's why in boys' schools, they play so much sport. They're so exhausted, they can't think about the number between five and seven for the New Zealanders. And you may have heard of the urban myth that soldiers were fed bromides in their, in their diet, bromides, possibly potassium bromide, which was supposed to lower your libido. It's, it's unproven. I said to Kendra, there are many passages in the Bible that are in your face about sexual activity. Let me read one that's appropriate here. Le- Leviticus fifteen sixteen. When a man has an emission of semen... He must bathe his whole body with water and he will be unclean till evening. If you've done biology 101, you know that is referring to nocturnal emission, which is God's way of dealing with bodily functions. And this is a challenge for all of us. Are we in the right position to make the right choices with respect to our sexuality? We will only be in the right position if we know the Bible well enough and we know our weaknesses and we know, know we need help and that therefore we ask God's help through the Holy Spirit. So by way of conclusion, whoever we are, whatever situation we're in, drastic action may need to be taken, lifestyle changes or whatever. Let me read again what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for, for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And that's why in the time of the judges, the conquest of the promised land, they were told to utterly destroy all the Canaanites and break down their altars. If not, they would be a snare and temptation. And what happened? They didn't destroy them all, didn't knock down all the altars. And that's the history of Israel from the judges to the end of the book of Kings. Drastic action may need to be taken. So let, let me close with uh, uh, an acronym. And uh, if you look at the acronym, there, you get two for the price of one. That's why there's a line there. So the first acronym is F-R-E-U-D. That's Sigmund Freud's name. You all know who Sigmund Freud is. Uh, psychoanalysis and um, everything seen through a sexual lenses. And then the, the, the second uh, acronym is F-R-E-U-D-E, which is the German word for joy. 
So the F stands for flee all forms of pornea. Ah, replenish continually. That means keep on filling up your mind with all that is good, healthy, and wholesome. E, evaluate what the world throws at us. Just don't take, take at face value what the world, what the colleagues, what the peers, what the family, what the neighbours throw at us. You understand our weaknesses. Um, some of you might be into Sun Tzu, the art of war, who says if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And D, determined to pursue God's, sorry, determined to pursue Godliness with God's help. And the E for Freud or joy, enjoy God's gift in God's way. Thank God for sex. I want to conclude by reading a poem that was written by Harris Hollis Jr. Lord, it's hard to know what sex really is. Is it some demon put here to torment me? Or some delicious seducer from reality? It is neither of these, Lord. I know what sex is. It is body and spirit. It is passion and tenderness. It is strong embrace and gentle hand-holding. It is open nakedness and hidden mystery. It is joyful tears and honeymoon faces. And it is tears and wrinkled faces at a golden wedding anniversary. Sex... It's a quiet look across the room, a love note on a pillow, a rose laid on a breakfast plate, laughter in the night. Sex is life, not all of life, but wrapped up in the meaning of life. Sex is your good gift, O God, to enrich life, to continue this race, to communicate, to show me who I am, to reveal my mate, to cleanse me through one flesh. Lord, some people say sex and religion don't mix. But your word says sex is good. Help me to keep it good in my life. Help me to be open about sex and still protect its mystery. Help me to see that sex is neither demon nor deity. Help me not climb into a fantasy world of imaginary sexual partners. Keep me in the real world to love the people you have created. Teach me that my soul does not have to frown at sex for me to be a Christian. It's hard for many people to say, thank God for sex, because for them, sex is more a problem than a gift. They need to know that sex and gospel can be linked together again. They need to hear the good news about sex. Show me how I can help them. Thank you, Lord, for making me a sexual being. Thank you for showing me how to treat others with trust and love. Thank you for letting me talk to you about sex. Thank you that I feel free to say, thank God for sex. Amen.